This week on Life and Faith. This led to the Brexit vote. And similarly, you might say in the US, I mean, probably most people who voted for Trump knew that he was not a particularly attractive personality, but it was an opportunity to push back against the people who'd been calling them the deplorables. This isn't a good or a bad thing. It just is the way that I am, and it can be good or bad. People just stand together and say, this is wrong. Forgiveness, it's an act that you practice all your life. And that helps you maintain a very different perspective on life. Welcome to Life and Faith from CPX. I'm Simon Smart. And I'm Justine Toe. Well, I wonder, do you think in Australia we're a polarised country? Probably not as much as, say, the US or perhaps the UK, as our interview with David Goodhart today will show. But we've had our own brushes with polarisation. You might remember the 2019 Australian federal election when the governing Liberal National Coalition was returned to office on the back of votes from Queensland. And some people jokingly called for Quexit. It was very funny. I thought it was hilarious, actually. (laughs) As in to excise Queensland from the rest of Australia, which, you know, is funny, but there's also a slightly nasty undercurrent there, Justine. Yes, I think I also heard it reported that the spike in searches on moving to New Zealand also kind of went up because Jacinda Ardern was was At that stage was a flavour of the month. Yes, that's right. Mm. I do remember after the election, Bridget Delaney wrote about this in The Guardian because she was at the Labour Party gathering when that election happened. Everyone's down in the dumps and she writes about how someone yells out, it's not you, Bill, it's the country. To Bill Shorten. Yeah, right. So Bridget writes about how struck she is by the contempt in that comment. And she writes, quote, This is it. This is the hardening of the arteries, the cleaving of the country in two, the thing that Australia has largely avoided so far. Now, I do think we avoided the division she feared, though I have to say I feel like that came up a little bit during the recent voice referendum. It did seem to, didn't it? That that illustrates some divisions in the community and some of the talk and the the discussion wasn't very edifying. And I wonder, after the vote, Justin, did you see that vivid sort of image of Canberra being the only state that voted yes? Mm. Uh, But also the maps of who voted yes, who voted no, which did show sort of the inner city vision from kind of everywhere City versus regional. Yeah, it did have that sort of feel about it, didn't it? But look, today we're not going to comb through that division, but I'll bring it up only because I think it's worth mentioning in our sort of immediate context in Australia. But today's interview is with the British journalist David Goodhart. And we thought it would be interesting to get an outsider's perspective on the divides that we've seen sort of roiling the world and that we've experienced here in Australia to some extent in our perhaps own laid back way. So Justine, tell us about David Goodhart. Yeah, well, he's a British journalist. He's the founding editor of a magazine called Prospect. It's a little bit like The Atlantic, to give you a sense. Mm. David's also the author of a couple of books, and the one we'll be speaking about today mostly is called The Road to Somewhere, The Populist Revolt and the Future of Politics. Mm. But he's also written another publication called Head, Hand, Heart, The Struggle for Dignity and Status in the 21st Century. And I found that book really interesting 
because this head, hand, heart imagery, I guess, calls attention to how jobs in our society get kind of divided. So you have head workers, as he says, they get high pay and lots of public esteem, whereas hand workers, people in manual trades, maybe they have to wear a uniform that gets dirty, they have less kind of esteem, I guess, compared to head workers. And heart workers have even less recognition because they do, quote unquote, women's work. Um, this is a kind of care professions, that type of thing. Yeah, that's right. So I found that categorization, I suppose, of a lots of the kind of work in our society really vivid. And you definitely find that vivid imagery in his language of the anywheres and somewheres, which he talks about in this book, The Road to Somewhere. So to set it up for people as we have this discussion... Tell us about who are the anywheres, who are the somewheres. Yeah. The first thing to remember is anytime you hear anywheres and somewheres, put a capital A, put a capital S. Okay. So anywhere people are the kind of people who can see the world from anywhere. They are highly mobile. They're usually highly educated and they're quite cosmopolitan in outlook. They can feel at home wherever they go. Their credentials, their qualifications give them a particular kind of ease in doing that. Whereas the somewheres tend to see the world from somewhere. They're more solidly rooted in particular communities. They might have a tendency to be more conservative, perhaps more traditional, also more communitarian. He's going to refer to these categories throughout the interview. But I began by asking him to locate himself, right? Because he's talked about the anywheres and the somewheres. Where are you, David? And I wanted to ask him, why did he once describe himself as an upper class Marxist? I came from a um, upper class, upper middle class family. My dad was actually a uh, conservative MP and I went to a very famous public school. But uh, I had a, a major setback when I was about 16 or 17, which was that I um, I didn't get into the school's first 11 cricket team. So uh, I decided to become a Trotskyist. <laughs> I was actually very pleased to read a few years later that uh, a very famous upper-class communist from the 1930s, a man called John Strachey, who actually ended up as a minister in the Attlee government after the Second World War, had the same experience. He had failed to get into the uh, Eton College First Eleven cricket team and uh, became a communist. Now, I mean, I, I was a typically somewhat rebellious teenager, and if you go to Eton and your father is a Conservative MP, then then the obvious revolt is in a leftward direction. I kind of bred myself out mm. of it over the following few years and ended up, uh, I probably spent much of my adult life as someone who identified broadly with the centre-left. I set up a magazine called Prospect in the mid-1990s and it was kind of loosely identified with the new Labour as they came to power in '97. Although thereafter it made its mark, I think, mainly by looking somewhat critically at some of the kind of animating ideas of the centre-left. And so maybe you've carried that rebellious streak into your adult life as well, because I believe <laughs> that you published a very influential essay, or a provocative essay perhaps, in 2004, saying that high immigration can be bad for social cohesion and solidarity. And this made a lot of liberals angry in the process Maybe you could tell us a bit about that article yeah. and also tell us, have you been let back into the liberal fold after <laughs> challenging that idea about high immigration? 
Yes, I, I wrote a piece for the magazine that I set up in the 90s. I wrote a piece in 2004, as you say, called Too Diverse? It was a quite long essay, five or 6,000 words. And actually, the whole essay was reprinted in the Guardian newspaper, which is why it attracted quite a lot of hostile attention. I identified very much with the centre-left myself at that time, and I was saying to people on the centre-left that there is a tension here between two of the centre-left's most important ideas, the idea of the historic left idea of solidarity and the newer idea of diversity, the importance of promoting diversity, and that just based on the common sense idea that people are more likely to trust and share with people that they have something in common with, based on that common sense psychological observation, I said there is a tension here. It's not necessarily one that's impossible to overcome, but people on the centre-left need to be aware of it, and that having very high levels of immigration not thinking about how people are absorbed into a society over time so that you have that sense of, as it were, continuity you know, in basic social norms and attitudes. Unless you give some thought to that, there is the danger of fragmentation, which will in the long run will damage the centre-left. The piece was reprinted in The Guardian. You know, I was um, what we would now say cancelled, not really cancelled, just attacked. <laughs> yeah. Um, it, w- it was around the time when we were opening the door to a lot of immigration from Central and Eastern Europe. So it came into the context of that debate. I've remained a large-scale immigration sceptic and a sort of integrationist multiculturalist. And um, I think those views are now much more mainstream. I mean, this was a time when particularly anybody who was remotely on the left questioning large-scale immigration was still quite a strong taboo. And it was a time also, you have to remember, when any questioning of immigration had a very significant sort of racial aspect to it, because most immigration, say, from the post-war period onwards, and indeed from 1997, I mean, when Labour came in, immigration rose quite significantly, and it was mainly people from ethnic minority backgrounds, it was mainly people from African or South Asian backgrounds who were coming in. And one of the reasons why I think it did become possible to, as it were, disentangle race from the immigration argument was because so many of the people that came in after 2004 were white European Christians, you know, Central and Eastern Europeans. So the race issue was not a factor. So it was possible, as it were, to talk about whether large-scale immigration was sensible from an economic point of view, you know, pressure on resources, pressures on the welfare state, and so on and so forth. It became possible, as I say, to talk about it without being accused of being a racist. It's Justine just breaking in here for a minute. Now, I remember at this point of the interview, despite what David just said, that to question immigration policy doesn't automatically make you a racist, my mind went immediately to Pauline Hanson <laughs> talking about how Australia was being swamped by Asians back in Oh, gosh, like when I was a teenager, basically. I do remember that quite vividly, and it felt awful. But I'm glad to report that that is not what David is talking about. No. So immigration is always a delicate issue, but it's not necessarily bound up with race. Although, as you say, Pauline Hanson's case, it 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 definitely was. (laughs) But if you think about the situation we're in at the moment, where there's a huge shortage of housing in Australia, Mm. we've got that's causing pressure for interest rates to go up and inflation. And so we're trying to wrestle with that. 
there's a perception that a fast lot of immigration could exacerbate yeah. those sorts of Create questions. Create more competition. At the same time, we've got a great skills shortage. So I think Australia would be remaining committed to being a rich multicultural society and seeing all the benefits of that. It's just that, and a lot of people have been making this point recently, you do have to, as you welcome people have all the infrastructure set up so that they can really feel welcome to their new home and not enter into a situation which is going to be problematic for them. Yeah, because otherwise you risk increasing that sense of social distrust and polarisation. Because, like, let's not be naive, right? If things start to go wrong, the easiest people to blame are the new arrivals, right? Anyway, back to the interview where I've just asked David to explain this divide between people on the left, broadly in favour of diversity and tolerance, and other people who are more sceptical, let's say, about high immigration. How does his anywhere and somewhere language account for this? So I wrote this book called The Roads of Somewhere that came out quite early in 2017 and it did quite well, unexpectedly well, because it was one of the first books that came out with a sort of general explanation for Brexit and Trump. Both of these had happened a few months earlier. Indeed, I started writing the book just before the Brexit referendum in the spring of 2016. I finished writing it just after Trump was elected that November and the book came out the following March. And these were things I'd been thinking about probably ever since writing that original Too Diverse essay that had got me into the whole kind of race and immigration and multiculturalism debate. I'd never really thought hugely about it before. And I think it gave me a kind of um, a sympathy. It allowed me to understand that people's objections to rapid change were not simply based on hostility to the other, hostility to outsiders or indeed people from a different race from them. There obviously often is an element of that, but there is a kind of more fundamental desire on the part of many, if not all people, to have a high degree of continuity in their in their lives in general and in, in the places that they live. And that that sentiment is not necessarily an illiberal or intolerant one. And I think that sort of divided me from what I would call the kind of prejudice of most mainstream liberalism is that any hostility to demographic change or kind of rapid change in general is at the least parochial and at the worst nativist or, or even racist. And mm. I think I took that understanding, I think, into the analysis that I applied to the world in the road to somewhere, which was mainly focused on, on as it were, that divide, that education-driven divide perhaps particularly in the UK, because of the enormous expansion of higher education, and not just higher education, but residential higher education. Can you explain that for us? Because that might be a bit unclear yeah, for us, the residential higher education. Yeah, basically the fact that a very large proportion of people going to university in the UK leave their hometown, leave where they came from, leave their family, their school friends and so on, and move to a different place in something like 70 or 80% of cases. So people, students living full time, not just in student accommodation in the town that they have always lived in. If you live in London, you go to Manchester or Newcastle or Leeds. And if you come from those places, you may often go to London or one of the other big cities in the North or the Midlands. And that created a sort of sense of separateness in a way or joining a different class of society almost. And it meant that a lot of the people, a lot of the best educated people, the most influential people, the most powerful people in British society were people who were used to mobility. Their lives were partly defined by mobility and they 
most of them anyway, came to find it something comfortable and rewarding, uh, which obviously it can be. But it kind of meant that they, I think, had a lack of understanding of how that doesn't apply to everybody mm. and that change can be lost to many people. And they tended to, not all of them, but there was a kind of worldview associated that which was comfortable with mobility, that tended to be sort of pro-change, pro-openness, pro-novelty, anti-tradition to some extent, anti-authority. I mean, a kind of, you know, perfectly decent liberal worldview, if you like. And there was nothing wrong with that worldview. The problem was it became over-dominant in our society. Before David narrows in on this claim of anywhere over-dominance, he explains the anywhere-somewhere divide as the tension between what he calls achieved versus ascribed identities. Another way of thinking about it, and I think as useful as my term, is the term which comes originally from an American sociologist called Talker Parsons, is to think about uh, people's identities on a spectrum between achieved and ascribed. So we all have a mixture of both, but anywhere type people tend to have, their, their identity comes from their own achievements, hence the idea of an achieved identity that you know you do well at school you go to a decent university and you have a more or less successful professional career and your sense of yourself comes from your own as it were self-propelled journey through life and that makes your identity kind of quite porous and portable as well you can live anywhere and you know you can live in the edgy inner city and feel perfectly comfortable if on the other hand your identity is mainly an ascribed identity you know it comes from the group you belong to, the town that you come from, the place that you were born, the place and the people that you know, your sense of yourself is therefore much more susceptible to being discomforted by rapid change because it's, uh, you know, suddenly you're, the neighbourhood you've lived in all your life is suddenly gentrified, say, sort of full of people from a different kind of social background to you or indeed people from a different ethnic group to you suddenly become dominant in your neighbourhood. I mean, it's going to be more discomforting for somebody with an ascribed identity. Now, when David uses these terms, the anywheres and the somewheres, you might want to ask roughly how big are these groups? So in his estimates, anywheres make up 20 to 25% of the population, and the somewheres are about 50% of the population. And then there are the in-betweeners who have a mix of anywhere and somewhere instincts and they make up another 25% according to David. But what's it like when one quarter of the population, the anywhere class, runs the country? Most of the activists and MPs and leaders of both the main political parties or all the main political parties tend to be anywhere anywhere-ish in their sort of instincts. You know, the people that run the media, the people that run the judiciary, the, the culture is very anywhere dominated. And I think that there was a kind of a lack of emotional intelligence, I think, on the part of, I mean, partly because the anywheres tended to be baby boom generation come to power. They tended to see themselves as rebels. They were challenging the residual authority of their parents' generation of post-war Britain. They saw themselves as the outsiders and couldn't see that they'd become the establishment mm. and that their priorities were very specific priorities of a specific generation at a particular time and place. And I think it was rather well illustrated by Tony Blair's speech in 1999 when he talked about 50% of all school leavers going on to university. 
perhaps at the time, no one thought it was particularly controversial. I think we'd probably undersupplied higher education going back to the 60s and the 70s. It had been too much of a kind of elite minority. When I went to university in the late 70s, only about 8 or 10% of school leavers did. And there probably was a need to expand it. But by the time he made that speech, about 30% of school leavers already did. When 15 or even 20% of the population go to university, if that proportion of people in your class at school or your town or amongst your friends go and you don't go, well, it's not going to particularly bother you. You know, you'll go on and work in a local office or factory or whatever and life will go on. If 50% go and you don't, then it's very easy to feel that you're already in the kind of slow lane of life, that you're kind Mm. of a second-class citizen. Nobody, you know, neither Blair nor anybody around him had obviously really thought about that. They hadn't thought about what it might be like to feel like someone who's not going. Yeah. Now, if we had a really good apprenticeship system, you know, we had decent recognition for higher manual and technical skills and so on and so forth, it might not have mattered so much. But this is a society in which um, partly thanks to the expansion of higher education, the arrival of the so-called knowledge economy, cognitive ability became what I call the gold standard of human esteem around this time in a way that it hadn't really before I mean, obviously, clever people have always been valued. You know, we need clever people. But we'd created a kind of mass cognitive class for the first time in history with a sense that those sorts of information-manipulating skills were on a completely different and superior level to other kinds of human aptitudes. Life and Faith, and we're hearing Justine's interview with David Goodhart about the anywhere-somewhere divide. I hope you're keeping up with that distinction. (laughs) Now, you've heard David say that you find people with anywhere instincts in the main political parties, the media, and as leaders of industry. So just to put this in context, specifically for politics, a blog post out of the London School of Economics found that almost 90% of British MPs went to university compared to almost 40% of the general British population. These trends are mirrored in Australia as well, but the difference isn't quite as stark. So according to a 2021 report in the Sydney Morning Herald, 76% of MPs have at least one university degree, compared to 35% of Australians aged between 20 and 65. That surprised me, I yeah, have to say. It is, isn't it? It's a, it That's does, a very anywhere thing to say, though. <laughs> it does present an interesting dynamic, Justine. But the conversation now in this interview turns to dignity. Yes. Both of David's books, soon to be three, because he's going to release a new one soon, are united in that theme of dignity. So I asked him, why is it such a big deal for him? And how does the expansion of higher education factor into the dignity question? There was that big shift that happened in politics post-Cold War. We had the victory of the West, if you like, and we had just at the time when we had this huge expansion of higher education and a creation of a dominant class that was what I would loosely call the anywhere class, you know, the graduate liberal class, emerging just at the time when the West had won, where we saw this victory of what we might call the double liberalism, both market liberalism and economics and social and cultural liberalism in society. And we kind of overshot. And I think politics then sort of shifted from being primarily about 
issues of free distribution, you know, the classic sort of socioeconomic based politics. And it came to be much more about cultural issues. And when I say cultural issues, I mean sort of issues to do with a sense of status and recognition and dignity, the kind of issues that we associate with populism. Populism is a sort of cry for recognition. This isn't necessarily a particularly good or welcome thing. Indeed, somebody like David Brooks, you know, the New York Times columnist who writes books on broadly social psychology. I mean, he talks very eloquently about how damaging in some ways it is when you move from a sort of socioeconomic based politics to a recognition based politics, because politics can often then become a lot more aggressive There's more sort of psychological skin in the game. Mm. It's my sense of dignity and and my side and the people that are promoting people like me versus the other lot. So this is not necessarily something to be welcomed, but it's also something that's sort of unavoidable. And I think a degree of recognition of recognition, if you like, is very important. And as illustrated by that famous Tony Blair speech, has not been front of mind enough to anywhere liberal politicians. They haven't been thinking about how this will be received by, you know, somebody on a middling or lower income in a small town whose traditional manufacturing job has disappeared at a time when the status of non-graduate employment has declined, not just the status, but the pay declined quite rapidly relative to graduate employment. The disappearance of the decent middle income jobs that manufacturing was very good at producing. Populism is often associated with hostility to immigration, uh, as indeed it is. But I think there's a whole sort of cluster of issues that were as much to do with these issues of sort of culture and recognition Mm. as purely economic. Things like post-school education, you know, how much focus society was putting on sending everybody to university compared to training people for you know decent middling jobs through apprenticeships and vocational training the whole question of the family you know is family policy essentially about getting women into the labor force as quickly as possible after they've had babies uh, or is it about actually respecting the importance of the family and making it easier for for one parent usually the mother but not always to stay at home when children are very young while also then making it possible to move back into employment, including professional employment when children are a little bit older. Questions of national sovereignty, I mean, anywheres tend to, as the name suggests, you know, tend to be kind of quite internationally minded. They're prepared to trade off efficiency. I mean, we saw this in the European Union, the kind of the economic efficiency of the European Union is worth sacrificing some democratic sovereignty, national sovereignty for is how anywhere has tended to see it. And somewheres for whom, you know, if they belong to, a, as it were, a high status successful nation like the UK or Australia, are strongly attached to their national identity and are much more wary about trading off sovereignty for economic efficiency gains. So there's that sort of cluster of issues that became the cultural stroke economic flashpoints and areas where the large minority, even majority of people with a more somewhere worldview felt that they were being completely ignored on these Mm. issues, that there was a huge consensus amongst the kind of anywhere dominant class. So whichever party was in power, these issues were ignored or looked at from just an anywhere perspective. I want to ask you about that. Is it that 
anywheres tend to hang around together and they don't know any somewheres. Does that make sense? And so they don't understand how to read the room. I mean, they're only thinking of the anywhere room. Yeah, they're not thinking yeah. of the somewhere room. Tell me about the role of humiliation and contempt then, because that's going on here, isn't it? Yes. Um, this led to the Brexit vote because people had the opportunity because they didn't have the opportunity in general elections, as it were, to vote against this sort of hegemonic anywhere worldview. So Brexit, you might say, was sort of collateral damage almost from this deeper conflict. Mm. It wasn't particularly that people were very hostile to the European Union, although the European Union obviously was associated with a lot of anywhere-ish ideas. It was just the opportunity to give two fingers to the anywhere graduate mm. liberal hegemony. And similarly, you might say in the US, I mean, probably most people who voted for Trump knew that he was not a particularly attractive personality, but it was an opportunity to push back against the people who'd been calling them the deplorables. Um, I mean, I, I remember around the time of the Brexit referendum, lots of people I knew who were involved in politics, you know, they'd go out of London and they'd come back and they'd say, oh my God, I've kind of met people who are actually going to vote to leave the European Union. They lived completely anywhere-dominated lives. Now, somewheres cannot avoid anywheres. <laughs> anywheres can avoid, and often do. You you live in a big metropolitan centre. You, your friends are all people that also went to university. You know, you're all middle or upper-class professionals of one kind or another. You do not know any somewheres. And that, I think, what one of the reasons for the complacency of the Remain vote was that they lived in a, a confirm, as you say, a confirmation bias world, reinforced very much by social media, not caused by it, I don't think, but kind of reinforced by it. So it led to the outcome we got. I feel mixed feelings about the fact that issues of recognition and status have become so important because, you know, as David Brooks says, I mean, politics is not really a place where you can resolve a lot of these kinds of issues and it too easily becomes sort of my team versus your team. You know, you've had your own version of the anywhere, somewhere divide in the referendum that you've just had. And I don't think any of our political cultures are very good yet at creating politicians who, who understand these divides and can act as a sort of bridge. I mean, I think that is what is required of contemporary politics. The anywhere, somewhere divide has not gone away in the UK. I mean, Labour are likely to win the next election here quite convincingly. But um, you know, the Tories had an opportunity to kind of realign British politics around a somewhat more sort of somewhere-ish post-Brexit coalition, but for all sorts of reasons, partly due to the pandemic and the character of Boris Johnson and so on, that didn't happen. And Labour will be able to take advantage of that, I think, and win a pretty convincing majority. But these issues are not going to go away. And we need to find a language that does not create that kind of rancorous populist politics of my team versus your team, which creates sort of characters like Donald Trump. But equally, there is a legitimacy to the status and recognition anxieties. You know, a lot of people have experienced, you know, perhaps particularly white working class men of a certain age have experienced a reduction in status as a result of changes both to the education system and to the economy in the last few decades. And I don't think just sort of saying, well, you know, you had it good for a while, it's sort of someone else's turn, is really going to cut it. Okay, so if David doesn't see politicians reaching across the anywhere-somewhere divide sometime soon, is there a role for churches then? 
After all, the American political scientist Robert Putnam of Harvard University says communities of faith can be places of bridging social capital, where people of different backgrounds can discover a kind of belonging together, which means that they're likely to become more forgiving and tolerant of each other, even if they're not from the same tribe. But David has a slightly different take, as you'll hear. The role of religion, I think, is very important here as a result of its absence. Certainly in this country, most anywheres and somewheres these days are largely secular. I mean, there's still often a kind of residual attachment to Christianity, both in attitudes and to some extent in rituals of people still having weddings in churches and so on. But it sort of adds to the disorientation and the discomfort of many ordinary people, even in very rich societies like ours, that the loss of roles and meaning, and part of the loss of meaning is the loss of religion, has made people more more vulnerable, more vulnerable to political demagogues, more vulnerable to depression, apart from anything else. I think something like 8 million people in Britain are, are on antidepressants at any given time. I mean, there are, there are many reasons for wanting to move beyond the traditional societies of 50 or 100 years ago. And we've had a great and broadly welcome liberalisation in attitudes towards race and gender and sexuality and so on. And by the way, most somewheres have accepted that great liberalisation. They think it may have gone too far in certain respects, but most people who voted for Brexit or vote for populist parties are not troglodytes you know, who want to go back to the 19th century But there were good things about, I mean, you know, freedom and autonomy is the greatest good, which tends to be the case in modern liberal democracies, leaves a lot of people, I think, very unhappy and uncomfortable that those freedom, autonomy and equality, you might say, are are all things worth striving for. But they also need to be balanced by something. And, you know, we've lost religion, we've lost moral stigma. And again, you know, that in many ways is a good thing but that a lot of these things overshoot. And the institutions that gave people unconditional recognition, like the family, like the church, or indeed the nation, all of these things are weaker. And the weakening of that unconditional recognition, I think, bears most heavily on the people who are the lowest achievers, as it were, in in modern semi-meritocratic liberal democracies. It's much easier to fail, I think, in a modern society than it would have been 50 or 100 years ago. I mean, people, I think, just thought less in those sorts of terms. You know, your life was sort of prescribed in some ways by the kind of place you were born, the kind of family you were born into. Your role was more of a given. Now, the fact that we have greater freedom is obviously, uh, perhaps particularly for women, is one of the great achievements of liberal modernity. But people are also group-based primates. You know, we still have quite ancient instincts in a lot of areas, and those instincts are not nourished, I think, sufficiently in a society like ours that doesn't have sufficient unconditional recognition for people just for who they are. That in achievement societies, you know, if you don't have that piece of paper that says you pass that exam, you will feel like a second-class citizen. Whereas in the past, perhaps there were things that would compensate you. You know, we had more stable families, we had church, we had stronger communities, and all of those things are weaker. So people are more on their own with their lack of achievement, as it were. 
been listening to life and faith with me simon smart and justine toe now if you've enjoyed this episode there's lots of food for thought here then why not share it with someone else and thank you to david goodhart it was great to speak with him he was also extremely patient with the technical difficulties i was having (laughs) not al i'll post links to david's books and other material that we've mentioned in this episode like the London School of Economics blog post, the SMH report on the backgrounds of Australian federal MPs as well. Now we've spoken about the anywheres and the somewheres. Let me thank our producer, Alan Douthwaite, who is always everywhere. Next week. We are saddened and even shocked, but it's not going to take away our ultimate vision and hope that what we call the Arab-Israel conflict may largely become a thing of the past.